It's good to know, Alon, that in the post-apocalyptic America, that if I tried to get help from you, you may end up murdering me. If your son coughs on me, you guys are goners. Hey guys, this is Alon, and welcome to another episode of I Finally Watched. And today, I finally watched It Comes at Night. And this is David, and I also finally watched It Comes at Night. So Alon, in our continued efforts to do horror movies through October, mm -hmm. I chose a movie that neither of us have seen, which I know you feel is a betrayal. But It Comes at Night is one I really wanted to watch, and I really wanted an excuse to do it. So I thought, what better than to use it as an episode? Um, going into watching this the other night, I realized I had no idea what this movie was about, except it starred Joel Edgerton and something happened at night. Well, and there was a dog. Yeah. You know, when you first mentioned this movie, I had no idea what you were talking about. Like, like you were like, oh yeah, you know, that movie with Joel Edgerton. And then and I was like, yeah, man. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, when the movie started, I was like, oh man, this is like relatively new. This is like in the last three three four years and i was like yeah i have no idea what this movie is and then i saw the red door and like uh i don't know like when the drugs hit your system it all it all came back to me and i'm like i've seen a whole bunch of trailers for this like this movie uh, i think it's produced by a24 it was right. pushed uh it was pushed uh, a lot um on the internet uh, with the trailers and the promo, uh, most of what I remember from it is the the red door. Most of what I remembered was the the dog barking, like the visual of the dog looking out into the woods. And I think that's like, it's the cover that is shown on Netflix so much. You know, this movie's been on Netflix for a while now and still is, so it's a good opportunity for us to watch it. And that image to me, and then I remember just Joel Edgerton, like, getting into a truck which she does in this and um but nothing else like i just like the the pieces of the trailer um yeah. so i had no idea i knew this was a horror movie but what causes the horror was something i wasn't aware of i thought it could have been monsters zombies whatever well in the beginning of the movie it really kind of pushes the whole zombie thing right um or at least it felt like that to me some sort of infection or maybe vampires, though, right? Because it comes at night. Right. I mean, but the, the thing was, is that for the trailers that I saw, and I understand that they kind of cut trailers in different ways and, like, try to get people to watch it. So the trailers that I saw, it made it very much feel like a very supernatural movie. It made it feel like, like there's a room in the house that the red door, that's behind the red door. And I remember the trailers being like, don't open the red door. You don't know what's behind there. And in watching the movie, it's for a much different reason than kind of what the trailers led me to believe. You know, spoilers throughout, but really we're going to leave the ending and that's where you really kind of see what the movie's all about. So go ahead and watch it. But the It Comes at Night is a disease, basically. It's a pandemic almost, a kind of sort of end of days affliction that you can catch and 
uh, it can, it seemingly, according to the movie, you're not given a lot of details about the disease, which is always like a good decision when you're trying to, you know, build tension and horror in your audience. Um, but it seems that the disease has like a hundred percent fatality rate that if you catch it, you know, you will die. And so having said that, when I was watching this the other night, my first like thought after I finished the first watch, cause I watched it twice was just how intense this movie was to me when in reality, like it's, it's a movie about a contagion, you know what I mean? It's like contagion or outbreak. Like it's a movie about this affliction, this respiratory illness, this thing that causes spots on your body. And yet I was for most of the movie, except for a small part in the middle, just kind of like on pins and needles, like what was going to happen. That's funny because, you know, to kind of hype me up for this movie, you kind of sold me on the tension. You were like, oh, it's more tense and has you in more suspense than The Witch. Um, it's got, you know, it's got you on pin it, pins and needles. And I was like, I don't know, an hour 10 through, I had like 20 minutes left of the movie. And I was like, well, when? <laughs> but uh, the last 20 minutes is definitely, definitely a ride. But I, I never really felt like, tense or i did feel tense but i i wasn't like held in suspense for much of the movie well and see to me because i don't know maybe it's because i'm a fan of joel edgerson's like i've seen a lot of his movies but i guess i bought in immediately to caring about this family and they kind of they set up what the disease is pretty early on the opening scene is uh, the grandfather of the wife, or the sorry, the father of the wife, grandfather of the son in this movie, having the disease and um, basically having to be put down. Uh, Joel Edgerton takes him out into the woods with the with his son and puts a pillow over his head and shoots him. And you kind of see the wife Sarah giving her last goodbyes to her father and just like how emotional that is. And I think it, the movie kind of takes off from there. You know, you, you're given the stakes immediately. Um, but then I think the tension that was built within me is like, what's going to happen? You know, this is basically, it's a post-apocalyptic movie where you could die at any moment. Like, what is going to happen? You know, how is this going to play out? And I think the tension was built more too, because I had no idea what the movie was about. I didn't know if there was attackers right, or, you know, what. So... Well, it's a really contained movie. I mean, there's possibly what? There's six main characters and eight people in the entire film overall, plus a dog. And when I went to look up how much this movie made, it made like a little over 20 million. I was like, oh, so it was kind of a flop. But the budget was like three million, three to five million. I was like, oh, it made like five times its budget, maybe more. So it, it's definitely like a contained movie. I apart from the talent, you know, the, the really good makeup effects, like the disease spreading and, and the effects that has that they did that really, really well, I thought. Um, the part that really kind of was like, set this movie apart was the casting and the acting, I thought. Um, I want to talk about the beginning when I believe his name is Will, right? Kind of comes into their lives, breaks into their house, and he is tied to this tree. 
And Joel Edgerson's character has to kind of interrogate him and be like, you know, what are you doing here? Are there people with you? What's your reasoning for breaking into my house? Uh, and he gives this story. He's like, you know, my family and I are held up like 80 miles from here or 50 miles from here. And um, we have food, but we ran out of water and that's why I'm here. And as the audience, you have absolutely no, and uh, obviously Joel Edgerson's character has absolutely no reason to believe him. But the actor that they chose and the way he plays it, it's like, I believed him immediately. It was just like very sincere. Um, and I was like, damn, you know, he or, you know, th the casting director did a really good job in getting this guy because I was like, and I, I know he's been in stuff. I don't know his name, but he's, he's been in a bunch of stuff. But um, the way they play that, and for a while, you know, you, they play with the fact that you don't know who the villain is. You don't know who the antagonist is. Um, but the way they played it was so genuine that even though you should have no reason to believe this random dude, uh, you do. No, I, I agree with you. He, I think he does a good job of explaining himself and he presents that character well. I will say that even after he explains himself and uh, Paul, who's Joel Edgerton, you know, lets him go from the tree and says, all right, let's go get your family. I still was, you know, this movie could have gone any which way, you know what I mean? And so I still was like, unsure of how this was going to turn out and was will eventually going to double cross them because he he might be a genuine guy but when things are tough i mean they were he was out searching for water so he needs the water for himself to survive for his wife to survive for his son to survive even good people in that situation can do bad things and so Upon my first viewing of the movie, and I want to talk about my second viewing of it later, my first viewing of the movie, the entire time I'm unsure of what this guy is going to do. And I'm kind of with Paul as to, you know, you can't really trust this guy. We don't know much about this guy. Um, he talks about how he was living with his brother, uh, but his brother died, and then they had to find another house. And then later on, he's talking to Will, and he's like, oh, I was an only child. And he's like, well, you told me you had a brother. And he's like, Oh, well, it was, it, it's my wife's brother, you know, my, my brother-in-law. Um, and that's like Paul kind of gives him a lot of pause. Like, you know, can I trust this guy? And, and if you think about it, that's played completely straight. If your entire survival is predicated on like not catching this disease and needing to be like super smart about how you live your life and try to remain as isolated as possible so you don't come into contact with people, that's going to create that that type of person who is untrusting of everyone they meet except for their you know their immediate family well yeah i mean it grows this certain type of um paranoia um which had me to believe like really that was their greatest villain up till you know and we'll get to the end later but up till the end i was like <laughs> they're gonna all turn in on each other and nothing is really like <laughs> neither party did anything bad at least that, that's what my thought was upon my first watch of the film. Which, yeah. Go yeah, ahead, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, which in a way, it is true 
but then other other stuff happens right and i want to talk about too because you talked about will uh the guy who plays travis his name's kelvin harrison jr he was in stuff obviously before this but not a big name i don't think he was great in this and like since then has been in a starring role in like a lot of stuff that's been like you know critically acclaimed and so seeing him a little bit younger in this you know three years ago um i think he plays that character so well uh i particularly like the way like i think the dream sequences he has like adds a lot to the movie especially with the confusion that it creates and like what parts do you believe and what not what not to believe Uh, especially especially the, the ending yeah, well, especially in the ending, but I was going to say, especially in the trailers. Um, I, was, I was talking to someone about it, and uh, he was like, oh, so the, the, the family that they let in the house, they, they're bad, right? Because, because in the trailer, she, like, throws black goo up in his face. And I was like, you're just going to have to watch the movie. Because that is part of the dream sequence. So it is, you're right, it's very misleading. And the, the other character, too, the the mom, who, upon looking her up, I realized she's been in a few things that I really like, liked her in and some movies that I really love. What I liked about that character, too, is you start out by seeing her at her most vulnerable. Her father, her husband has to shoot her father and burn his body, which we never get a good explanation of why they needed to burn the bodies. And it's also strategically uh, may have led to, <laughs> you know, some issues they had to deal with throughout the movies, uh, right. throughout the movie. Um, but you see her at her most vulnerable, crying over her dad. But as you see throughout the movie, she is like, you know, ride or die. Like, we have to do what we have to do to protect this family, you know, almost more than Paul, you know, the, the patriarch of the family. Um, she's kind of strategically knows like what things have to be done and almost with very little empathy to what that pain that could cause to other people. Right. Um, so her character I think was really, really interesting. And obviously that all plays out in the end. Um, the, the son is kind of suspicious, I would say throughout the movie like there's he has this place in up in the attic which he can hear like all parts of the house right. um and that plays a lot in how the movie ends and also just kind of like his mentality because i would have to guess he's probably about what 16 years Seven, old they say 17 when he uh when he talks to uh will's wife uh, that's Kim. right yeah yeah 17 and uh there's this moment he has with Will's wife where he is caught kind of staring at her breasts and she kind of is really polite about it. I would say she dismisses it. You know, she's like, all right. I'm, he's like, Oh, he kind of catches himself too. And he's like, okay, it's time for me to go to bed. <laughs> but um, you have to give into perspective. Like he's just been living with his mom and dad and his grandfather for, you know, however many months, years, um and the relationship that they have together being so close and so like tight knit it has to be kind of rewatching this movie it's like oh the loss of the grandfather i we as the audience didn't really get to know him 
but like that had to be really heavy for everyone in that family. You know what I mean? Right. But not only that, that conversation with Kim uh, also kind of points out you would, you would, as former teenage guys, we would, I think we would understand that living with your family and the idea that as all your hormones are kicking in, how are you ever going to find a girl, a woman, you know, to spend whatever the rest of your life is, you know, they make it a little unclear. Like, do they think they can ever kind of get past this, the way the society is? It doesn't seem possible that it seems like this disease is sort of like the end of humanity and like, it's however long you can survive. So to be 17 years old and stuck with your parents and like no chance of finding some sort of outside love or friendship or whatever, um, I think that conversation really like exemplifies how tough that would be. Yeah. I mean, you know, this isn't our first apocalyptic movie that we've talked about, talked about this with. And uh, I, I couldn't imagine like, well, you know, this is, this is it. Um, the, it does leave everything very vague. And the one thing that it leaves like really vague about the, the disease or the, you know, what's, what happened is the symptoms of the disease. Yeah, I mean, all you really know is it seemingly might cause breathing problems. It causes these welts or fissures all over your skin, these round, pussy-looking things, and it, it kills you. Um, one thing, uh, you know, we were talking before the recording this, and you were like, you know, the, it, the, the night part really seems to kind of be like a red herring, like it doesn't, seem to to matter at all to the movie and upon watching it again i did realize i mean it seems that this disease is much more infectious at night (laughs) you know they go out during the day not wearing masks for the most part unless you know something absurd is happening um but at night they never go outside at night is like their number one rule unless it's an emergency and when they do masks and gloves so I from that I we I guess we're supposed to gather that this disease is much more infectious in the dark which is interesting yet doesn't make a whole lot of sense later on in the movie it kind of contradicts the whole night thing because when Stanley the dog starts like barking at something in the forest and runs off you know that's in in the broad daylight that's not at night actually a lot of bad shit happens in the broad daylight and it seems like only like the, I, I don't even know. I don't even know what happens at night because even when Stanley comes back to the house, basically dead, it looks like something has eaten him, I guess. And that happened at night, but it, it, it wasn't quite clear on what made him run off in the first place. Well, and I have, I usually watch movies with subtitles. So when I watched this and stanley runs off and then he runs over the hill uh the subtitle said crunch there's like crunching noises so it almost felt like it was a a bear um we are not told what part of the world or what part of the united states this takes place in i was get i was thinking like pacific northwest uh the rockies or you know near the rockies you know appalachia something like that right because it's kind of hilly um but other than that, we don't really know. So I was assuming it was like a wild animal. And as Paul says, 
you know, the dog knows these woods and he knows how to get back. I think the reason uh, Paul was yelling at Travis for running off is because one of the rules is we always stick together. And I don't think it's necessarily that they were worried about the, I, my point earlier is that it seems like the disease is more contagious as, at night because when they go out at night, they always have to wear masks. When they go out there in the day, they usually don't. And I think he didn't want him running off because if you come upon some random person that either has the disease or is going to try and steal your stuff. I mean, they have like a twofold issue where someone could just infect them or they could be infected by possibly like an animal because they were worried that Stanley might infect them. Right. Well, but they're also it, just worried about bandits, bandits 24 seven. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. But I mean, you're right. It, 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 the, the disease is infectious to like, you know, you can catch it via someone else or some, something else. But then it also alludes to this, like, it's in the air sort of thing, you know. Um, but only at night. But only at night, which it's kind of hard to sell that on, on, I guess. Like I said earlier, this movie gives really no explanation or exposition to anything that happens. So, which is kind of cool because it makes you as the audience have to kind of put pieces together as, as the movie goes on. Um, but I don't think we can really continue in depth about talking about this movie until we start moving into the end and trying to like connect all, all this together. I did want to, before we get into the ending, sort of take it back to why I thought this movie was so tense. And part of it was, I was talking to my wife about it, I had like cold air blowing on me. So I was already kind of chilly with like goosebumps. And so then watching the movie and caring about the characters may have led to it being more intense than it might've been. Um, I also thought it was interesting right when, you know, I said earlier, you weren't sure if you could trust Will. Um, right when his wife and son show up, you're really like, okay, this guy has a family. Like he's not some dude who goes out and robs people and kills people. Like he's, you know, just, it wouldn't logically make sense. And then when Travis listens in to their conversations and they're not immediately having a conversation like, all right, how do we kill these people? You know what I mean? Like there's just, this is just now their life. Um, I think you are put at ease. Now, having said that, you're still unsure what Will is capable of to save his family, just as the same way you're unsure what Joel Edgerton, Paul, is willing to do his, to save his family. And I think that's when you get into a double-edged sword. I mean, I guess that, that would be the, the saying for this particular um, instance, because there's a point where, and for me, it was pretty early on in the movie, you don't quite know what perspective you're looking at this story from. Are you looking at it from the perspective of this man who has a family who will do anything to, to protect and, and save them? Or are you looking at a family that doesn't have morals that, you know, cause when Will comes, they have food, they have chickens, they have, goats i think right it's like a give and take sort of situation they have a water supply and and the other family has food it occurred to me that the joel edgerson's family could at any minute be the ones to 
kind of double cross Will and his family and take all their food. No, absolutely. I think you're obviously the vantage point of the movie is from Paul and Sarah and Travis, just because we see their like family meetings when deciding what to do with, with Will. And um, we see just their more intimate moments when we see Will and um, his wife, Kim, their moments, it's like from the vantage point almost of Travis listening in. Um, Right. The what I did enjoy too is to build up how, as we're about to get into the ending, these these families start to in the middle of the movie like all the tension is sort of parted when Will and his family finally show up, and it's really just like montage and moments of like these families coming together. Uh, Travis seems to really enjoy having like Andrew, their young son of Will and Kim, around to like play with. He seems to have an attraction to Kim, but then also just an attraction to hanging out with these people and the family's bond over games and dinner. And so it's like that part is important because it really sets up how devastating the ending is to me. Right. No, definitely. And um, the way that the movie kind of keeps that part interesting at a you know, kind of a thriller suspense level is the part we've already talked about where Will mentions his brother or where he mentions he's an only child, but then you remember he already talked about having a brother, which puts obviously Paul uh, into a a sense of, you know, uh, can we trust you, but also the audience. Right. I think what also does that too is uh, a moment we didn't address I want to do real quick the drive to go get Will's family, which is probably one of the more intense scenes. And then all of a sudden people start shooting at them and Paul is able to take one of them out. And then Will is beating the shit out of another one, but then tells Paul not to shoot him. Paul's like, why would you tell me not to, to murder this guy? Um, Like, are you with him? And he actually points the gun at Will. And so it's just, once again, and Will finally sort of loses it. He's like, you have to trust me. Like, why do you keep not trusting me? Like, I almost just beat this guy to death. Um, And I think that is another moment where it's, even though in retrospect, Will may have done nothing to seem untrustworthy. It's just the time they're in. Right. And the circumstance, you can't trust anybody. Right. And uh, to the point where those two guys were shooting at at Paul and Will in the truck, um, when they are kind of laid in that ditch next to each other. And Paul is kind of just looking at them and it lingers on the two, on the two corpses. So I started kind of like looking at them and one's like significant, there's two males and one significantly older. It kind of made me think, and I think that's what kind of the movie wanted you to think too, is that they're father and son. And this whole movie is kind of based around family and the fact how much you love your family and what you would do for your family and that's kind of the whole uh, center of this movie especially when the two families coming together under one roof um the the movie itself is only an hour and a half because i think there's only so much time you can have of peace of those two families under one roof until you have to basically 
get to the ending of your movie. Well, not only that, I did want to point out too, like the way Paul stares at this father and son that he's just shot. And it's like this moment of one, like, would I be willing to do what they did? You know, almost like I'm not as bad as them. I'm not going out murdering people to steal their stuff. And that obviously plays into the end of the movie. But then to your other point, um, within 12 minutes of the start of it, I was looking at it is when Will shows up, you know, breaking into the house. Right. And so like, there's no exposition to this film. Like they get, no, into that's what the I'm action. saying. Yeah. They get into the action very quickly. And so it's almost the rest of the movie sort of plays out at like a normal pace, but they, it seemingly cut off a huge chunk that they could have had at the beginning. But I think because you want to keep the knowledge of the audience limited, I think it works. And now I think we need absolutely need to talk about the end of the movie because if anyone who's listening to us ramble about this film and is like, wow, this, they're not making sense. Honestly, the movie doesn't make sense until you do watch the whole thing and you start putting it together back in your mind. Right. And so the, the, the ending starts basically with about 30 minutes left and Travis finds Andrew, the son of this family that's lived with, uh, that's moved in with them. He's Andrew's about four years old, finds him in a random room and takes him back to his parents' room. And then uh, Travis hears banging at the front, uh, you know, on the red door. And he, when he walks around the corner, he sees the red door open and he hears a loud thud and he goes to get to his parents and his parents find um, Paul, his dad finds the dog who was seemingly attacked, uh, has made it back into the room and was sort of banging on, you know, trying to get in and they have to put the dog down. And the inciting incident is not even that, that is, but when upon second watch, especially, they're having a, a meeting afterwards to say like, oh, you know, this is what happened. And Paul's like, you know, perhaps Will and I for the next few days are going to be the only ones that go outside because something is going on here. And then Travis just has to bring up like, oh, well, the red door was open. I didn't open it. And they're like, well, maybe you imagine it, maybe you sleep. And he's like, no, I was wide awake. He's like, Andrew probably opened it because I went and found him in, you know, grandfather's room. They're like, are you sure? And he's like, I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. I'm sure. And it's like, what? right after that, his father's like, all right, well, we all have to sleep in our own rooms and stay quarantined from each other, basically. Mm -hmm. And Travis is like, why would we do it? We don't need to do that. You know, it's like, Travis, what did you think was going to happen when you so like vehemently said, like the red door was opened at night? <laughs> it doesn't quite make sense on a lot of levels because it's stated very clearly at the beginning that the only set of keys to that door is around Joel Edgerson's neck. No, the only set of keys to the door outside the red door. The red door is just locks that anyone can open. So from the, the key, inside? Right, from inside. There's, okay. There's deadbolts and things like that. Okay, okay Because okay. they even say Andrew, uh, Will, his father, says Andrew's almost too short to even open those because Trav says, That's oh, right. Andrew might have opened it. No, you're um, right. And, and then after that, they're quarantined and Travis is awake and his snoopy ass has to go investigate some noises he hears and he hears Andrew crying and Will and Kim saying, we have to get him to stop crying and we need to get out of here. We need, basically we need to save our son. And he decides to then go tell his parents that. 
and his mom, as I said, completely like down for the cause to do whatever it takes is like, well, I mean, what choice do we have? Which you know is like, we have to kill these people. Like what else could it be? And once again, Travis is like, why do you have to do that? It's like, damn it, Travis, like (laughs) grow up. You had to ruin a good thing. No, you're, you're exactly right. Actually, a, a moment that I really like in the ending is when Paul comes to the family's door and is like, hey, Will, open up. I need to see Andrew. I need to, you know, I need to make sure he's okay. And immediately, you know, they have a gun. I guess they stored a gun somewhere. They hold him at gunpoint. And they're like, hey, look, I know you and you're not going to let us out of the house. So that's why these drastic measures have to be taken, but we're leaving the house. I I really like that moment because Will is very much aware of the trouble he's in and his whole family is in, and he just kind of takes that precaution with the gun immediately. Well, what what you realize too, and this is kind of what I was thinking in the beginning, because Paul doesn't trust Will, but how could you ever trust someone that you tied to a tree for multiple days? Like even understanding what it's like in this world. If you tie someone to a tree for days and like barely give them any water and like threaten to kill them, you have set up a person who like, why would that person, you know, if, if push comes to shove, I can't trust that person anymore. Well, was it multiple days? Cause it felt like one day. It was a definitely overnight, and then he, it was overnight, and then I do like how Paul is sitting in a shed with a gun, or sitting in the house with basically enough uh, of a circle to look through it and watch, but also to stick like the muzzle of a gun through, because right. it seems like he's waiting for people to come get Will. Right. Yeah, and that's so what I felt like a, that too. It was at least... It was at least over 24 hours because he comes, Will (laughs) comes at night. Um, He takes him out the next, he takes him out kind of like in the dawn and ties him up. And then it's like through the day he's watching him. And then it goes through the night because you see Sarah sleeping. So it's at least over 24 hours. So the, the other thing is, is that they leave Will outside without a gas mask on. And it's like, if this infection is really more infectious at night. Why would you do that? And also it doesn't make sense. It's not like the house is like a fortress, right? It's like there's, it's a, it's a wooden planked house. Like wouldn't the air get through like the vents or the window seals? You, you know what I mean? Like they probably have double pane glass. So it's- oh, okay. Thank you. Um, I did like too that they have gas masks and kind of a situation we're dealing with now. Will just has like a cloth bandana. It's like right. not all masks are created equal and like you're gonna trust this guy. I also like how he just did monsters. And like a big thing about that movie was masks, and now a big thing about this movie is also masks. Well, I also uh-huh. had the thought connecting to when we did Warrior. Once again, we're doing a Joel Edgerton is a teacher movie, but right. it has nothing it has nothing to do with him being a teacher, but it's just that's his profession. I know, I know. And when I was watching it, I was like, man, he's typecast as the weirdest history teacher ever. Um and so getting back to the ending, right. Will is holding 
Paul at gunpoint trying to get out of the house. And then Sarah points the gun at him. And Will even says, you know, hey, let's both put our guns down and we can talk. And from Sarah's act, you know, her acting, um, the you know, the, the actor's acting for the character, it seems like she is willing to. But then Paul, you know, grabs the gun and they're taking them outside. And the what I want to talk about now is my first viewing versus my second viewing, and I'll get into it if I'll let, I'll let you go. But Paul then is like hits Will over the head with his gun. Is like we have to chase after Kim and Andrew because they ran off. And he's like, "Look what you made me do!" Like Paul, you were gonna, you were murdering them anyway. What do you mean, "Look what you made me do"? Like you were taking them outside to murder them. Like what's the difference? He wasn't supposed to fight back, right? Um, another thing is, is that the reason this all happened is because the little kid, their kid, Andrew, um, is like coughing and whining and, and he's like really sick. So you assume he has the, the disease. You assume he has the, the infection. The, the urgency of the matter is the fact that they can't keep him quiet as he's whining and coughing and all that. But as soon as Joel Edgerson walks in that room and all the tense gun pointing and, and uh, you know, everything like that, you don't hear a fucking peep from the kid. Well, I mean, that's just, it would have ruined like the sound mixing of the scene, I imagine, but- it pissed yes. me off, man. It did because it's like, oh man, he's coughing. You can't, we can't, they're going to hear. He can't stop. Oh my God, we have to leave. And then it's like, yeah he just totally stopped coughing for like a solid 15 minutes. Alon, you don't have kids and you just simply don't understand that you can't make them do what you want, especially at that age or younger. Um, and what, I, what I also is interesting is we never get a 100% answer on whether Andrew is actually sick, which also like makes the ending that much more like heart-wrenching. I mean, the way Will and Kim act you believe him to be sick and it also oh, yeah. to me makes would only make sense as to how travis gets the disease in the end um but that's but another never, thing we never get confirmation well we never get confirmation but will tells andrew to keep his eyes shut and a big determining factor of if you have the disease or not is i guess your eyes lose their color or they turn like glossy white right and the fact that he's telling the little kid to keep his eyes closed is like, yeah, he totally has it, but you're not like going to look into his eyes and can confirm he has it. Um, well, the other reason you would be telling your son to close his eyes is because you're pointing a gun at a dude. And, like, that's maybe not a thing you want your son to see you doing, especially if like triggers have to be pulled. I guess. But for me, I didn't even think about that. I just thought like, oh, they made such a big deal about catching the infection and your eyes turning white. That must be like, that must be why. So, but you're right. It never like 100% tells you, okay, Andrew definitely had the disease. Um, and I guess since we're talking about the ending, we find out that Travis also has the disease. My question to you, David, is who do you think got it first? I don't, I think it's a little left open. I think taking everything at face value, like Andrew opened the door and maybe touched the dog. 
um, you know, he's an unreliable witness when, when asked by his mom, like, did he go to the door? There's no, like, it didn't seem like there's any blood on him or anything. And that dog was pretty bloody, but it would seem that Andrew probably gave it to Travis. Um, the real question is how does Travis not give it to his parents? Um, and my, when I first watched the ending, I was affected by the scene where Will and Kim and Andrew are killed by Sarah and Paul. But I really didn't appreciate the ending after that, when you see that Travis is sick and you see like, I just didn't understand it. And I also thought it was like super rushed, like what was happening in it. So here's my interpretation, and we're going to kind of include a thing that we didn't talk about, if that's okay with you. Sure. Um, now, I will reiterate that this movie gives you absolutely no explanation or exposition about this disease. And what I found online is that a main symptom of this disease is fever dreams and sleepwalking. And you do not get that in the movie, except for this one line where Joe Edgerson asks Will, does your son sleepwalk? And in a very like worried kind of look, he's like, no, he never sleeps sleepwalks. Like, no, never. And it's like, why would you be so like adamant about that answer unless it had something to do with the disease, which I find out it does. And the fact that dreams and sleepwalking are a major factor in this infection leads me to believe that Travis has had it for a while during our watch of this film. And there's this ending part where you think Travis is dreaming about going outside and hearing Stanley's barking. And he turns around and there's like a very like yelping and like something is being e basically it's alluding to the fact that something big is eating stanley right and it made me think of what if on purpose they want the audience to get his dreams and his sleepwalking memories mixed up where he went out to find stanley he saw stanley get attacked by something big he brought stanley to the cusp of the red door and then went back to bed woke up and then what we saw played out and so when well, he when he took andrew by his hand to lead him back to the bedroom that's when he could have passed andrew the disease because one we never see andrew like fully so we don't know how far the symptoms have developed right so i can see also, throughout the movie, Travis has fever dreams. Yeah. So if, if your source is to be relied upon, then he would have had it for most of the movie. Also, Travis couldn't have gotten out of the secondary door. So I still think it would work if the dog broke through, Travis went out and checked on him in a sleepwalk, and then later on when he was actually awake, woke up, and got Andrew and brought him back. It's also possible that he just imagined bringing Andrew back and that Andrew never actually had this. He just had a cough and is a four-year-old that is whiny. Right. So in a more starkly 
evil version of this movie, they murdered this family who was not sick. And in fact, their son was sick. Right. Um, one thing though, I said, I didn't like the very end after they kill the family. I didn't like that end of it, but upon second watch, I kind of appreciated it more. Cause you do, you have that scene where, um, Travis sleepwalks or dreams that he goes out and sees, uh, Stanley, the dog get murdered. But in that too, you have the mom sitting over Travis and looking at him with all these spots. And at first I thought, oh, that could just be another dream. But then you see the mom look at him again and you can, in the realization in her face, see that he has just died. And then you see the mom and the dad, uh, Sarah and Paul, sitting at the table in the empty seat of their son, um, which like that to me clearly is Travis had it and he died. And to your point, he could have been the one, he could have been the only one who had it or he could have given it to Andrew. But what I also thought was interesting upon first watch was like, well, this makes no sense. How does Paul and Sarah not have it? And they might, they might eventually start showing symptoms. But what I think is a, an even kind of an explanation I prefer more because also I want to talk more about my second watch of the whole movie, but it's almost their punishment that they have to go on living knowing what they did to protect their family and their son. And not only did it not work, but they have to live with like their sins and their right. the horror of what they've done to this other innocent family. Right. And especially since like their own son might've been the cause of everything, you know, I also liked when the mom was over his bed as he's sick, his, his dying was walking down the hallway to the red door, like going out the red door one last time was like when he the moment of him dying, which I thought was like symbolically cool. No, no, no. A hundred percent. Very symbolic, uh, symbolically cool, especially with his lantern, um, which they did a lot of, I, I really have to uh, give props to the cinematographer because with like that one lantern light source came like a lot of good, really cool shots. Um, real quick, because I, I really do want you to get to your, ex, you know, talking about your second watch. But uh, I want to talk about the camera movements for a second in this movie. There's a lot of very symmetrical shots, very long, like dolly forward shots and dollying back. And they knew what they were doing when, when they, you had these shots, um, especially when like the lantern, like someone's walking towards the camera and the camera's dolling back and the lantern is like down this narrow hallway. It slowly reveals that the space that they're in as the lantern illuminates it and just all the shots, the, the very long symmetrical shots are spooky and, uh, it works so well in this type of movie. I also thought an interesting shot was when Paul finally goes out to talk to Will and takes off the tape and takes off his mask um, and says, listen, I need honest answers from you and I'll give you water and I, we'll see what I can do. The camera this entire time is like looking at Paul and it doesn't really, you don't see Will's face all that clearly. And then the camera sort of pans around to show Will and it's kind of the first time you're seeing Will as like a character, a human, um, someone that Paul could possibly like care about 
right um someone he could see as human i thought that shot was like really well done um another thing too and uh it it was so subtle i almost didn't catch it until i couldn't ignore it anymore and we'll it, you'll probably want to elaborate on this too um but the aspect ratio of the whole movie changes at the end in a very subtle way. And I thought it was the coolest shit I've seen in a while, editing wise. I did not notice. Please explain further. You didn't notice? No. So the whole movie is shot in this like, you know, basic wide screen with the, you know, little black bars on the top and the bottom, right? Okay. During the entire time where they brought Will's family outside and they killed them, that entire scene, the bars started getting lower and lower until you could only see like the bottom of everyone's chin and the top of everyone's forehead. And it stayed like that from that scene to the very end of the movie. Wow. Yeah. I did not notice that at all. Clearly not very observant. It, it happens. So, so it just, it doesn't like cut to any specific point where it's like, okay, it's normal widescreen. And then it's like this like super tight aspect ratio it's just this very slow pan. And like I said, I didn't notice until we were basically like 90% of the screen was gone. And I was like, holy shit. Like, when did they do this? They tricked me. Um, uh, I would, for you, I would just rewatch that ending just to notice that aspect ratio because the tighter we get, the more like uh, suspenseful it becomes. I, I don't quite know how to explain it, but it, it was like, because you could only see a very specific point of, of what they wanted to show you, um, it felt claustrophobic, which I kind of feel like is a feeling that they wanted to get through to not only the audience, but the characters too. So to get to what I want to talk about, when I first watched this movie, as I was explaining earlier, um, you know, Joel Edgerton is the protagonist in this movie. And in most movies you watch, even when the person's kind of a bad guy, you're rooting for the protagonist. We talked about Nightcrawler, how like you're, you don't want to see Jake Gyllenhaal in that movie fail. And so right. th through my first watch, I am watching this as like, you know, Joel Edgerton is doing what's necessary to save his family. And so the, in, and to that point, I'm always worried about what is will going to do you know what is is he going to screw paul's family and murder them or right. cause them to get the disease and after you finish that first watch and you know okay will and his family never did anything wrong they were trying to survive they brought chickens and goats and canned food and other things and they were helping out around the house like they were, I can say for, they were completely innocent, really. And so when I went into my second watch, you're able to see everything Paul is doing in the light of knowing that Will has not done anything wrong. And it just really, that view of it, like it makes Paul and his family, Paul and Sarah specifically, just seem like monsters. And that really changed the movie for me because everything you're seeing them do is just like, it's so horrible. And right. specifically 
deciding because a four-year-old has a cough that you're going to take outside an entire family and shoot them in the head. Um, it's just like that the scene where they kill everyone to me upon second view because of the way I was viewing it, it made that scene so much more powerful to me. Um, like, like it hurts so much more to watch. Um, it was really like striking to me the difference in that second watch and in the end. It's almost to the point where like your aspect ratio thing you want me to look at, I don't know if I can do it. Um, no, but see, that's the thing. That's why I, I probably can't ever watch this movie again because it's so sad, even though it is a good movie and there's some really cool things editing wise, shot wise, acting wise. It's such a tragedy such a tragic movie that it puts you in a mood where unless you just really specifically want to be in that shitty mood you you don't want to watch this you don't want to see this movie it, it also too there was a couple moments in that scene where that where everyone you know the other family is murdered and um will knocks the gun out of paul's hand or at least makes him fumble it and i was thinking like will take one swing into Sarah's face, she'll be like somewhat incapacitated and like, you might actually survive this whole thing. Um, but he didn't obviously, and then gets shot. And then when, when Paul shoots at Kim and kills her son and she's just screaming, like, like you texted me after watching it, it was just like, yeah, the ending was so sad. And I was like, yeah, it was sad. But then watching it again, I was like, really like, <laughs> hard to watch that after that scene you know and then he, then kim is like uh murder me kill me and he shoots her um which i guess he has to at that point you're all in and then what do they get for their just lack of empathy and lack of humanity for these other people like travis dies anyway and as we've discussed might have been the cause of yeah. one might have been the only person to have it right two might have been the cause of giving it to this other family well, now it get, definitely gives and has given it to his mom and dad. So, like you know, that ending shot where you see them at the dinner table, it they probably have it, and they, from what I could tell, they know that they probably had it. And what what are you gonna do? You're gonna shoot your wife, and then burn her body, and then shoot yourself. Or at that point, it doesn't matter. You're just gonna shoot her and then shoot yourself. I I do think that at the end there's not redemption but there is at least paul and sarah showing like the realization of what they've become you know paul goes into kim and um will's room and is like drinking himself you know not to death but just drinking the entire bottle yeah. looking at the pictures that andrew's drawn and this is at the same time that travis is dying and as i was saying earlier you know, they're not showing any signs of the virus. They obviously probably have it because how could they not? And it's almost, you know, she wasn't wearing a mask when Travis was dying. It's almost as if they're at this point, like giving up and wanting to die. Right. So when you see them at the table, like I was saying earlier, it's almost would be more fitting if for some reason they're immune and live the rest of their lives as the monsters they are. I think that's kind of a fitting ending for those people. Now, look, I agree with you. Like, what they did is really, really shitty. But also, it's not their fault. Like, to a point where they have to take... You, you live in this world where, like, crazy, you know, shit hits the fan. 
and you have to kind of just be like, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. Maybe their son was never sick. Maybe it's the common cold, maybe, but it's like, you have your own family to protect. It's like, yeah, it's ironic if uh, they're immune and definitely, you know, Travis had it and died from it, but it's kind of just the result of this world that they now live in. Um, It's good to know, Alon, that in the post-apocalyptic America, that if I tried to get help from you, you may end up murdering me. If your son coughs on me, you guys are goners. You think you could kill me? (laughs) Uh, So, Alon, you've already made it clear that this isn't a movie you plan on watching again, mm -hmm. not because of uh, how great it is or anything, but just the... I agree. Um... This was a great movie. Um, even when A24 releases a movie that may not be the greatest, I think all of their movies like cause you to think and are very well done. Um, I don't think this one is an exception. It's a pretty amazing movie. And as I said, like one of the most intense watches for me. Um, and because of that, and because of how damn sad the ending is, it's not something that I can watch anytime soon again which is, I think, a compliment of this movie, so. Yeah, it it definitely sets out to do something, and it it does it effectively. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of I Finally Watched. Uh, This is David, and I finally watched It Comes at Night. And this is Alon, and I also finally watched It Comes at Night. See ya.